everyone. What's up? How's it going? Uh, this is the Cube and Chaos podcast. I'm Finite MTG. Yeah, and I'm Craig Short. Yeah, and today bringing you a little bit of a different episode than normal. Still going over the alternative play calendar somewhat, but we also just wanted to talk about Chaos Draft strategy. Kind of in general, and it's something that we feel maybe gets glossed over a little bit compared to Cube strategy, which is a lot more popular. There's a lot more content out there about that. Yeah, Jakob, a lot of these points were yours, but love to build off of and yeah, interact with them. So if you want to go ahead and introduce first one. Yeah, so I was mainly thinking about full chaos draft when talking about these. Later we will um, shortly talk about how things can change if you only draft with more recent packs. But this year now it's really just if you include everything that's on Magic Online, basically which you can apply if you join our Discord. We, from time to time, host Chaos Drafts there. And yeah, you can come and apply these little nuggets of strategy that we are going to throw your way. And yeah, so the first thing, and I think that's just in general, the one thing that is so important with Chaos Draft is that you have to re-evaluate all the cards. And it's not just evaluate them, but re-evaluate them. You have to, in some cases, get pretty far from how they worked in their original sets. And you have to be also careful uh, to not step into blind spots there because there's quite a few cards that were only okay or pretty bad in their original formats because they didn't synergize with the rest of the set but are very solid in Chaos Draft. And if you draft with a lot of these old sets, solid is often exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, I think one nice heuristic for reevaluating cards is just thinking about synergies and about how they may have changed. So one shortcut that I know people make a lot is that there are just no synergies in Chaos Draft, which I think we will argue isn't quite the case. You can draft as if there are no synergies and that makes things a little bit less fun for sure. But for the most part, it is true. I'd say that um, things like tribal synergies, while they can happen in Chaos, they're going to be much harder to make work some synergies, stuff like energy or, I don't know, how about um, splice onto arcane, things like that will be almost impossible to get to work. Yes, splice onto arcane is like a real example of cards that you have to value down. I would I would still take a glacial ray, which is just a two mana shock in that case. But yeah, like it was the first pick originally, but it's not really anymore. But mm. then like if you look at, for example, Old Mirrodin. I'm not sure if it's a card is from Mirrodin, but there's Karstoderm, I believe is the name. It's mm, a yes. two colorless and two green 5-5, five, five, but it's not really a 5-5, five, five, it's a 0-0 zero, zero that comes into play with 5 plus 1 plus 1 counters, and whenever an artifact comes into play, I believe, you remove a counter from it, but in Chaos Draft that's much, much, much less of an issue than its original format, so that card would be like super amazing. And that's with this example, it's relatively easy to see, but when you have the packs in front of you, you just really need to remember that these things can really change drastically. Yeah, there's a really funny mix of how experience benefits you and doesn't benefit you in Chaos Draft. Because on the one yeah. hand, with experience, you're able to evaluate cards better than people who haven't necessarily drafted the set. So anyone who's played with a card like Leonin Bola or Sprout Swarm uh, knows exactly how great those cards are. Basically knows that they shouldn't be passed uh, almost ever. Yep. Whereas people who are drafting those cards for the first time may not know that. But then if you're in the mindset of, like you said, Mirrodin, 
if you're looking at the Frank Karstaderm, then you might you know, think of it as a worse card than it really is, because even if one artifact comes into play, it's still like a 4-mana four 4-4. Four, four. That thing is huge. It's so, so strong in Chaos. Yeah, and an even stronger example from the same set, or not from the same set, but from the same block, is from, from Darksteel, the Drooling Ogre is one of my favorites, which was completely unplayable in its original format, but is a very... Like, it's a very risky card still, so it's for one in the red, a 3-3 Ogre. And whenever a player plays an artifact spell, they play against Control of Drooling Ogre. So, yeah, and in the original set, it would just switch back and forth and basically never do anything. But in Chaos Draft, like, you can risk it. You can play that card main deck, and your opponent might not have an artifact. You might even be able to just keep one in hand for yourself, just in case, and beat down really hard. And that card still goes around really late in a pack in draft, and I believe not rightfully so. I think that card is worth it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. The red aggressive decks need a tool like that too. Two mana, three, three can really beat down. The other thing I like about that card is it's a little more interesting, I think, something like Karstaderm, because it incentivizes like careful deck building and play. Artifacts get yeah. so much better when you have um, a drooling ogre in your deck. I guess another fun example would be maybe like Waxmane Baku, which is a card that's quite strong when you're able to cast the spirits and arcane spells, because I believe it's two and a white for a 2-2. Two, two. Um, yeah. I don't remember, is it like key counters or something that you put yeah, on there? Exactly. Yeah, And then you can remove uh, the counters after casting those spirits and arcane spells and tap things down. And this one's a really funny example just because it's not a very strong card in Chaos, not compared to the original set, but... Uh, on Magic Online, it used to be bugged, and you could tap things down without removing any counters. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't cheat, though. Yeah. Yeah, there are actually a lot of bugs on Magic Online right now, especially relating to the word another, sack outlets and things like that. So really important to just play by the rules, and it, it seems like a really basic thing to say, but you're going to ruin the experience for your opponent if you don't and you actually could end up losing your uh, magic online account so just uh yeah for like multiple time offenders like right. yeah. if it if it happens to you once and you'd realize afterwards like i don't think you should fall into panic and contact customer support and be apologetic immediately i don't think that's it but um, don't abuse it sure and it's good to be on the lookout for yeah for sure and if people cheat you then definitely report that and apply for reimbursement Anyway, a bit of a tangent there. Yeah. So back onto probably your next point here. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that this makes that this, that you have to reevaluate all of the cards makes the signal reading more dangerous. So this also counts for old cards that you know are strong, but other people might not know. For example, if you have like damage prevention on like healers or healers that prevent multiple points of damage, or something like a sword field. Recluse. It's a, a two and a white, one two rebel that you can tap to give a creature minus two minus zero until end of turn, which was very very good in its original format, and people who played that know that, but not everybody knows that. And if you get something like that relatively late, you should pick it, but you should be careful with reading too much of a signal into that. People might just be misevaluating the card. Definitely had uh, stuff like that happen to me a couple times where I get past absurdly powerful card um <clears throat> but maybe people are just a little less familiar with it or misevaluated it and then it turns out that that color is not what i'm supposed to play at all 
yeah, if you have something like Hallowed Healer from, from Judgment who prevents two damage to a creature or player, three mana, one, one, and then four damage if you have threshold, that card <laughs> is like completely bonkers for a common, but people might not see that. So while it is absolutely a first pick, and if you get it like fourth or fifth or something, it might be a signal and you should take it, but be careful with it. Could maybe splash. <laughs> yeah, and then these healers, they, they lead me nicely to the next point, which is don't run out of things to do. So board stalls happen because of creatures like that. They make it incredibly hard to attack, so games go long. And unlike cube draft or other retail sets we've drafted recently, people do run out of cards in their hand, often. And you rarely die with cards in your hand, if unless you're like completely screwed or cut off colors, something like that. But in recent retail sets, I noticed that because of how strong aggressive cards or how strong many cards play to the board and how easy 2-4-1s are to come by, people rarely run out of things to do. But in Chaos Draft, especially if you draft with all of the very old sets, running out of things to do is a very, very common thing. And if you run out of things to do and the board is stalled, you want something you can do there. So you should really emphasize card draw and mana things. So obviously good card draw is good, but you should think about cards that went like in the last three picks in their in their original sets, like for example catalog, mm -hmm. just an instant for two in the blue which draws two cards and you discard one card. That card is not great. It's not even real card advantage and it's a bit overcosted even, but still it gives you stuff to do. You can keep a land in hand and you can keep those those wheels turning and that is really important, having some cards like this. Or other examples are Rummaging Goblin or Tormenting Voice, all of those medium cards. Or like in black, like four mana, draw twos that lose you life or something like that. There are many different versions of this card. They are much better in Chaos Draft than in the original. Yeah, I really started getting into Limited around, I want to say, Kaladesh, Ether Revolt. Those were the sets where I really started jamming a lot of drafts and found that um, when my opponent cast very good card draw spells like Glimmer of Genius, which to me were terrible, I just ended up winning. <laughs> and it's because it's really important nowadays in Limited that your card advantage is tempo positive. If your card advantage is tempo negative, then you're not affecting the board enough, you get too far behind, and it doesn't matter if your hand is great. I mean, you can easily die with a full hand, like Occam said, because yeah, you're just taking too much damage. You need to get something on the board cast a removal spell, something like that. Other cards that go into this category of having things to do with just other mana things, like creatures that provide you with a little bit of value when you put mana into them, or one of my favorites are just equipment. For example, cultist staff. Equipment for three, equips for two, and gives plus two, plus two. Or sure, yeah. most recently the plus two maze from, Far. from AFR, yeah. These cards are just, they can be really, really good in Chaos Draft, because they make all your threats relevant. Creatures are smaller on average in general. So this plus two plus two really matters. And while in the original formats there were nothing to write home about, in Chaos Draft they can be like among the more, more important cards in your deck. Another example that came to mind, you mentioned Catalog. I was thinking of Inspiration, which is a card I'm a yeah. huge fan of in Chaos Draft. Also Cancel. You can just play these cards that are nowadays not quite there on rate and maybe actually for a while haven't been good enough on rate because with the average of sets uh, the games take longer you can get away with 
just these grindier, slower spells. I'm thinking that maybe we can interpret your observation too about dying with cards in hand versus dying without cards in hand to mean that nowadays limited is much more aggressive, whereas like in chaos drafts, it's really hard to put together something so aggressive that your opponent can't cast all their spells. At least that's that's how I think of it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly can happen, and that, that leads me to parts of, of the next point. You should be somehow able to play to the board, but it is not, it is just, it happens so much more often that you can manage to stabilize the board and then stall it out and then get the time to make use of your clunky cards. And that is something that I've not seen happen much in recent sets. Like, the board stalling out, I, that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Like, there's good evasion in almost all the colors. There's cards that keep keep you going. And they've been much more careful with printing cards with bigger toughness than power. And, like, I mean, everything can have reach nowadays, but most of the time mm -hmm. it's not a 2-4 anymore. Just yeah. making those cards 4-3s commonly nowadays really changes something, like how the commons interact with each other. And yeah, in Chaos Draft still, you can still very often get into very defensive board state. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so the next point here is that you should draft with a plan to build a real deck. And that is the synergy part that I like to talk about. Like, there's two points to this synergy medal here. And one of the things is synergy is often just the general plan of your deck. It doesn't have to be the spirit lord with all of the spirits or <laughs> the, I don't know, artifact regrowth with a lot of artifacts or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's to have a plan, not starting the draft, but starting with your first few picks. So when you start with very good card draw, and that's, for example, something that happened in my draft of the Chaos Draft Pro Tour, mm -hmm. then you need to find the ways to translate your card advantage to the board. So defensive speed cards. Things that might not be able to kill your opponent, but that are able to stall the boards. Like 1-3s, 2-5s, like, I don't know, stuff like that. Or... Doing the 2-5s. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love wincorn crap. <laughs> in Chaos Draft, they are much less of a wincorn than in, uh, what was it, Ravnica, Return to Ravnica? Yeah, and I oh. think a corset recently too. Yeah, because there you had like much better removal and you could just clear the board completely and attack with your two fives. But in Chaos Draft, that rarely happens, but they can store the board quite well for you. Um, just multi-blocking with some one threes. If you if you had two for one with their combo trick, you can recover from that if you had started the draft with, with good card draw early. So yeah. you have to make concessions there because there are aggressive decks. and if you draft good and many creatures early, that allows you to get into one of those aggressive decks. And those are the decks that want to run the equipment. And also you can play combo tricks there quite effectively because they are so much harder to play around in Chaos Draft. That's definitely true. I think the fact that you mentioned like the, the win-con crab is really interesting. It's not a card I love uh, these days, but it is an excellent stat line for Chaos Draft and particularly one that gets underrated a lot, I find some other mana 2-5s, uh, they don't need to have text on them to be solid defensive bodies. Just like a reasonable stat line for the cost and blocks great, attacks decently too. Um, yeah, they're not amazing, but there's just somewhere in the middle of the old and new creatures that they 
can really outclass the old the older creatures while needing some help against like the really early pick good creatures from modern sets but like it's not the like they only play a small part in your strategy the example you gave is a good one i do think it's very important to draft a plan and i think that's a great way of putting it too because people do think about synergies a lot and synergies aren't really as important as just like in my opinion having a good conceptualization of like what your deck is trying to do like if you are trying to yeah if you need to end the game within the first like six or seven turns or you will just die then you know you might start looking at those crappy two drops with a little more respect like you need to figure out some way your deck can win games and like one example of this would be uh, you mentioned board stalls and like evasion is great evasion's always been great but if you're playing a deck without evasion, then you need to figure out how you're going to get blockers out of the way. So your magmatic chasm effects, your oh, yeah. <laughs> your um your stuff of that falters. Yes, exactly, your falters, um, that are not cards that nowadays we would consider good, right? They don't really, you know, affect the board enough. They're not close enough to being worth a card, I think, for modern magic, but chaos draft. You have a bunch of creatures and they can't attack because your opponent has one or two larger creatures. You need some kind of way. Maybe it's a gridlock, for instance, just something to remove some blockers and get in for damage. That's just another effect that I think gets underrated. Yeah, for sure. It's like you need these effects, especially because your your playable margins are so much smaller that this upside of them becomes more relevant. Mm -hmm. You You will not just have all amazing cards or very rarely you yeah these really go with a plan and therefore you should you should pick them up if they fit your deck but like yeah we talked about evasion if you have a lot of evasion then don't pick those then don't they don't they won't do it for <laughs> you but if you get good evasion early then you can prioritize other cards that might not be interesting for other people like if you're still planning to be very aggressive maybe some only power pumping auras or equipment can really help your deck win mm -hmm. Just equipment is probably much, much better because you know, if you get into board stalls, then you can just attack in with your dog, with one dog, and then equip it to another on blocks, which is a play pattern that real board stalls does still come up. Sure. But um, only power pumping is like often not good. Like, But for example, um, somebody who drafted, I wouldn't say very powerful, but a deck with a cohesive plan, and meaning that was something that I... I think was was nicely done was a master's draft in the chaos draft portal like he drafted evasion creatures and put what is it called the blade um it mills and oh. oh i know what you're talking about it's from innistrad i've never liked that card <laughs> no it's not good but like putting it on flyers and getting in there is a risky way of maybe getting there like it makes the most out of a relatively bad card here, it's a trepanation uh, guide. Yes. For three, colorless, it's an equipment, equipped for two, and when it attacks, defending player mills until they mill a land, and then gets plus one, plus zero until the end of turn for each card reviewed that way, or milled. So if it's directly a land and it's only a plus one, which is very bad, but you can spike some strong damage hits in there. And if you combine that with evasion uh, or other things to get your creatures through, then you can make work of a bad card yeah like it didn't work out in this draft 100% for him but just you will get into spots in chaos draft where you don't have all the playables you want 
and you need to pick up some stuff late. And this is the kind of synergies that you need to look out for to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah, I think that's a nice example of a card that, like, while maybe not normally playable, does have its niche in the right deck where you're trying to push damage with evasive creatures, especially if you have the ground locked up as well. Um, and I think Amaz did have a decent way of locking up the ground. Um, another example that comes to mind for me, uh, and also can lead into your next point, uh, is the card Thirsting Axe, which is three mana for an equipment uh, that gives something plus four plus zero um, and equips for two, but it says uh, at the beginning of your end step, if equipped creature didn't deal combat damage to a creature this turn, sacrifice it. Um, and this is a card I had uh, been familiar with uh, drafting before, and I didn't consider it playable or very good, even though it does give that huge power boost. Um, and in a draft, in a chaos draft, where I went pack one, pick one, Abyssal Persecutor, um, and was looking for sack. Oh. Yeah. And oh. <laughs> I was looking for sack outlets, um, I realized that Thirsting Axe, you know, it doesn't look like it. Um, also kind of like Grafted War Gear, um, which we'll get to later in the uh, peasant, or the Artisan Cube section. Um, you know, it has the word sacrifice on it. It can be used as a sack outlet. Um, and so, yeah, it's just important to keep in mind those synergies. But yeah, to use that to transition to your next point, yeah. I guess, about sack outlets. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that, um, especially if I find myself in black and red, I really value random sack outlets quite a bit higher. Uh, like, even if the creature is just a medium status, maybe a hill giant, and has a, um, a bad um sacrifice clause like there's a there's a hill giant from uh from lorwin mm -hmm. you could just tap it and give i don't know some creature flying until end of turn and then it would you would sacrifice mm -hmm. it would just chuck a creature i'm not sure can that sacrifice i think it anything? might only be goblins but i'm not positive yeah if it's only goblins then it's maybe a bad example but if it would be something similar to that like i don't know you would sacrifice a creature to gain a life or something mm -hmm. something like pretty unimportant even if you have to pay some mana for it i don't know pay two sacrifice a creature gain one life that would be very bad but i would i really like to pick up these cards early if they are otherwise from the stat line relatively playable because they allow you to get late threatens and threatens just two in a red sorcery gain control of target creature until end of turn untap it gains haste those cards have been printed in many many sets often at common and if people don't have sack outlets, they will come around to you late. And they can be very good in your deck if you have like two or three sack outlets. Mm -hmm. So it's not something go that go is going to happen every draft, but it's like real synergy, basically the other side of the synergy coin, not the more macro synergy, thinking about your deck, but the more micro synergy, where there's a common one-two punch, like a A, B, A plus B combo that is still broad enough to come up in Chaos Draft. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are other cards that you can read and think about um, where this could come up. For example, also in the Chaos Draft Pro Tour, <clears throat> I it didn't matter there, but I picked up uh, pick six or something, um, Death Through a Thousand Stings, um, which is a Kamigawa card, so there wasn't all too much in the, in the pack. Um, so it's a five mana instant, target player loses one life and you gain one. It's an arcane. So terrible it just doesn't do anything for five mana but at the beginning of the end step if you have more cards in hand than each opponent you may return death 
of a thousand stings from your graveyard to your hand. So if you pick up some catalogs or a looter, if you're very lucky, or a rummaging goblin, if you're slightly less lucky, then you can build your game plan around that. Stockpile a few cards in hand, and then you can each turn return that card to hand and discard it again. And I mean, maybe you will even kill your opponent. Probably not, but like it's a if there's nothing else in the in the, in the pack, look for cards like that and think about them. There can be just some hidden synergy there, and yeah, there's upside there. I think that was actually one of my favorite picks from your draft. Um, not because it was an exciting one, but when I see a pack like that, my eyes just tend to glaze over. Um, and I think that happens to a lot of people uh, if they're you know used to looking at a pack like that and just seeing no cards that are playable like let alone interesting um but you did find something really interesting there um and it you know it's not 100 that it'll come up or that it'll make your deck uh fortunately um but it was just i thought a really nice kind of speculative idea and i think i remember jasper uh being in chat at the time having some criticism of kamigawa and then saying something like stop trying to make kamigawa interesting or <laughs> so, Yes, yeah. that happened. Um, I have one. Yeah, but I do like this, these kind of things, and this is also what makes Chaos Draft super exciting yeah. to me. Just constantly rereading the cards and like speculating on how I could get them to work if I'm in the end short on playable. Yeah. yeah, this example that I was going to give is not quite as good um, because I think that with yours, you're taking um, Threatens, which most people consider uh, like not very good, and turning them into basically unconditional removal which anyone would consider good um my example i take like two cards that people consider either from like medium to pretty good um and turning them into like a really really great combo so this is actually i think an inset combo in like m14 you have like scroll thief uh so two and a blue for a one three that draws a card when it deals combat damage to a player and you have trained condor Two and a blue for a two-one flyer that, when it attacks, gives another attack flying until end of turn. And basically, the idea being, even though you have to spend two creatures to do it, if you're able to, you know, give one of your Aphidian effects evasion, it's such an easy way to run away with the game. Um, it's a really fun oh, combo yeah. to put together too, um, and that's something you can do pretty easily. Um, kind of like the sacrifice. Uh, stuff like throughout Chaos Draft because there are so many Aphidians and so many ways to give them evasion. Not all of those are going to be good. The auras that give, you know, plus two, plus two and flying, those will be good in the all-out aggressive decks. Um, if you're playing a more controlling deck that happens to have, you know, some scroll thieves or something in there, you probably don't want to play a card like that, but um, they definitely, you know, you can pair um, effects like that pretty strongly. Yeah, and if you do something like that, um, like picking up like an aura to put on your Ophidian or something, um, think about your when when you're drafting. Think about your sideboard because like if you happen to see that uh, some hexproof trick or something, then maybe pick that up as well. Maybe that will be one of your sideboard cards. But in general, just while you're drafting, think about the weaknesses that your deck will have and that you are positioning yourself in. For example, if you are in this in this lane that I talked about earlier, where you have good aggressive creatures early, and um, then you pick up some combo tricks late to force them through. Um, think about picking up not like a huge amount of more combo tricks, just so you have the best choice between them. But maybe pick a few like medium creatures 
just some goblin pikers or some uh, hill giants, stuff like that, that is not exciting and probably will not make your main deck. But these I would consider sideboard cards because if you are in a matchup where the opponent has lots of good removal or just good removal, lots of good removal is rare, but it could happen, then you want to sideboard out the combat, especially after they have seen them and sideboard into just creatures because like if they're relying on their good removal to stay in the game and and card draw then the combo tricks will not do anything for you if they are not blocking if they're not playing on blocking then you need to shift your game plan around and then just having dorky creatures can be amazing yeah for sure sometimes you do need to increase the supply of threats and combat tricks acting as like burn spells is not (laughs) going to be very effective that often probably lead to you getting two for one instead Yeah. yeah Get those value dashes in. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that sideboards are really important. You mentioned reach before, and I also briefly talked about evasion. And it's just a reality if you're playing green that you're going to need to find a way to deal with flyers. Um, and so one of my favorite yeah. ways to do that is by drafting the solidly statted creatures with reach really highly. Um, so things like five mana, four, four, vigilance, reach. I really, really like cards like that in Chaos Draft, uh, but you don't always get cards like that, especially if you end up going into green later, and that means you know those indecable cards that help you out against flyers um, might not be an option for you, and if that's the case, then you have to start looking into the plummets, and also the giant spiders, right, which, you know, those are main deckable too, for sure, but not quite as, I don't know, useful sometimes as a plummet, because if you're playing against a large flyer in particular, or multiple large flyers, which would really be rough, then you do need those sideboard answers that the reach creatures don't necessarily provide. And not to mention things like naturalizes and disenchants too. We already talked uh, about equipment, but what we didn't mention is one of the reasons it's so strong is because it's difficult to interact with. If equipment could be killed just as easily as creatures, it wouldn't be nearly as good. might actually be worse (laughs) than creatures because, you know, Equipment are so difficult to interact with, they stay on the board for longer, and they can really pose a problem. So when you're able to deal with them, or deal with any enchantment-based bombs, things of that nature, then you just make things so much easier on yourself. I actually have a couple YouTube videos that I've put up recently that mention the sideboard in the title of the draft, because that's how important it was. And I think both of them were trophies as well, so that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, and in a similar vein, but maybe less obvious, Maybe pick up that Gilded Sentinel, 4 mana, 3-3, Golem, Artifact creature. Because, well, it could be in your aggressive deck, it could be this card you bought in over your combat tricks, but in your more defensive decks, it doesn't have reach, but it does block creatures with fear. Or what is the, the fear called for Intimidate. any color? Intimidate, yeah. There are decks that rely on that. Mm-hmm. Not like every draft that it will happen, but you might want that as a blocker over maybe a... Th- Slightly better standard creature for four mana if your opponent is relying on on getting through with with fear or intimidate. Sure, yeah. I was able to beat Toffel in the Chaos Draft Pro Tour, but the match I played against him before that, I took, I think, 12 damage from a Blade Tusk Boar, just a four mana 3-2 with intimidate. So (laughs) I guess one more example of sideboarding. This is like the the golden standard, like, you know, probably never going to happen again. Uh, but just a really amazing moment. If you know Randall uh, or KTO on Magic Online, he yep. once was playing against an Obsidat, and the that's the newer one. So the one that's extra hard to cast, a one generic double white, double black, 
5-5. When it enters the battlefield, you drain an opponent for two. At the beginning of your end step, I believe this is... Oh, yeah. boy. Then you can, um, you can exile it and then bring it back, I believe, during your next upkeep with haste. Something like that. So just like an incredible yeah. bomb. And he was not very happy after losing game one uh, to that card. He didn't despair. He actually remained calm and collected, looked through his sideboard, and found a Rift Sweeper. So, Oh, yeah. I was thinking of a worse card. I was Because Rift Sweeper is still a mm -hmm. bear. Yeah. Rift Sweeper um, is a card you, you're not embarrassed has... to main deck. Yeah. But I was thinking about a card called Pullform Tomorrow, mm -hmm. which is basically the same text, but on a one-mana instant instead. And they both basically just put a card of, from exile into the graveyard. Right. So, yeah, got that obsolete good. There's also a time when... Even two for yeah, one. Yeah, it, it's really insane. There's a time when DC Sports uh, played a Rift Sweeper against me and shuffled away my Suspend card. But that's so much more, like, profane. Like, that's how Rift Sweep... That's what it's planned It for, was main yeah. decked. Like, I don't know, the Obzidat story, that gets me every time. <laughs> yeah, that's... And one thing that's also... Like, we talked about this many times, is one toughness creatures. They are a huge factor in Chaos Draft. Like, going back to that um, that healer or pinger type of stuff, they are cards you have to deal with. And drafting one toughness hate, one toughness only removal, is very relevant. And it gets even more important for you if you do not have other better removal, because you don't mind spending a shock or... I don't know, yeah, some other toughness-based removal on one of those really strong onboard trick creatures. But if your deck doesn't have good removal, you cannot rely on your combo tricks there, really. They're not going to block with it and letting you get them with the combo trick. In those decks, having one toughness hail is even more important. Especially because a lot of the one toughness creatures have those super obnoxious abilities, whether it's a healer, though you're not always going to want to try to ping those. Then Yeah, but if it's like piracy charm right. or a Norsi or something like that then it still works. Or if it's like a Silvergill Dowser which is sort of a healer but also can get pinged really yeah. easily. And another thing too about the one toughness stuff, you mentioned that you don't have other better removal, it becomes more important, which is definitely true. It's also just if you don't have other playables. If you have to play like Hornet Sting, basically. Like that is a playable card in Chaos Draft. It's not a card you're maybe proud to put in your deck. It's something that yeah, yeah I sure. mean you can you can use it to trade. Gut shot, that's probably just a much better version though. Is <laughs> something you you'd probably be happy to play a gut shot in Chaos Draft. Yeah, and with that my only last point is there are some real archetypes and just keeping them in mind, um applying the stuff we just talked about to those archetypes might might help you. If you played a bunch, then you've probably seen all of them. But one that is often spoken about as probably the most classic and well-working archetype is Blue-White Skies. Mm -hmm. Just always a fan favorite. It just works. Getting people dead with evasion, the good board stall stuff we talked about, it's just a good archetype that is probably fun on almost all tables. Sometimes you can play it with red, maybe. Yeah, it's quite good. Then green often plays a mid-range role, playing like reach creatures like you talked about. Yeah, trying basically to, with big creatures, get the two-for-ones. And I think having defensive cards is even more important than having like green ramp in there. 
um, yeah, just solid creatures work there, and this is one of the decks in equipment also. You can lean aggressive or defensive depending on the matchup. So that's where green often is found. <clears throat> then there's often a red-black removal pile. Mm. You just sometimes pick good removal into good removal, and you find yourself in red-black removal. And this is the deck where I like to look out for the sacrifice synergies. Obviously, which I didn't say early, good sacrifice synergies are even better than bad sacrifice synergies. Like, if you have good sac outlet that stands on its own, it's just a very nice spot to be in. Sure. And these decks, they often don't have the greatest creatures. So that's a little bit their, their weakness, I guess. Then blue X control very often comes up. Like, this is this, you picked up good card draw early. Most of the time that is in, in blue. Sometimes it's in black, but that's basically it. And if you start your draft with that, often you will end up in a blue X control deck. The other control deck is five color control, which I don't know. I've somehow people are always hyped about that and talk about that. It was probably the most drafted archetype in Supreme, um, right? In the Supreme Chaos draft, yeah. But I think that this archetype does not have legs on strong tables. In the Chaos Draft Pro Tour, nobody did that, right? At least I didn't face it. I think, I don't think, I think it Sam Eilenfeld actually might have. We'll have to go back and take a look at that. Cause I, okay, I didn't play against him. I think he him. resolved um, a Maelstrom, uh, Maelstrom Archangel. We'll have to, <laughs> we'll to double-check that. All right. But it's like super dangerous on, on strong tables. But if you find yourself on a weak table, I don't know how you... Like on Magic Online, it's hard to, hard to tell. But if you go to your LGS and no people are not so strong at Chaos Draft, uh, because they do it for the first time or whatever, then I think this is a super fun archetype. Because this is where you really get people on their bad card evaluation. Like, you get strong late picks, you see strong cards go late if you are drafting with inexperienced players. And in this five-color deck, that's often depending on the green ramp slash fixing cards, you can take advantage of that and play all of them. So that's why it's a very fun archetype. But I personally would advise against it on a strong team. Yeah. But sometimes you got to live the dream, right? Like if it's not for big stakes. Sure. And I'd like to hear too from people who like have more experience than us in drafting that archetype. Like really only drafted five color once in chaos. I mean, I've played some decks that end up splashing colors, but only one that I can really consider five color. And I know that like I mentioned Jasper before, like drafts a lot of five color and has some really, you know, crazy decks and lots of success with them. Uh, same with one. And I think Sam Island felt, I'm not sure about five color specifically, but I've definitely died to like nickel boluses that he's cast in his green decks and things of that nature. So, yeah, just it does get harder if people are good at evaluating how strong the cards are. Yeah. And then there's mono red and maybe mono white, but mostly mono red. And that's a deck you also quite often see. It's just red, I guess, in all of Magic is the most narrow-minded color. It's almost always all aggression. So <laughs> if you find red to be open and you can stay mono-red, you will have to play quite a few real junkers in there most of the time. Like, Goblin Piker get in there, for sure. That's like a, it's your baseline, basically. Mm -hmm. But these decks do work well, and they attack the form it from, from an angle that is hard to keep up with for the other archetypes we talked about earlier. They all have weaknesses to that, with maybe the green mid-range deck being the worst match. But the Skies deck, like, they pay extra for the evasion. They are 
not stacking up so well against the idiot attack on the ground. Exactly, the turn one Raging Goblin. Yeah, yeah. One of Juan's signature spellbook cards. Of course, the, yeah. The uh, mono red, just like the five color, it's really not for the faint of heart. You have to, well, with the five color, you, I mean, there's a lot of risk there and potentially a lot of mulligans, depending on how your openers look. And with the monocolor decks, you basically, like, are guaranteed to be short on playables or at least cards that most people would be happy to play. But you really have yeah. to accept that, you know, your card quality is going down, even though your consistency and your speed are going up. Yeah, so I think with that we come to the end of the section, so now you know all my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you come over to our Discord and, and beat us up and show us what we missed. <laughs> sure. Would love to see more five-color drafts and we'll you know, see whether it's fact or fiction that um, those can really be successful consistently. Yeah, I guess next up, talking a little about Pioneer Chaos, which we had on Magic Online recently, which was nice. Yeah, check out check out Max's YouTube channel. There's quite a few great videos of that format available. Thanks, yeah. I definitely have a lot of them. And yeah, it was a really sweet format to draft. Uh, one of my favorite things about it is that it's inviting to players who have not necessarily Chaos drafted before. Because the card pool is so much smaller, it makes things easier to parse. And I think another really nice thing about it is that tight gameplay is very important. It feels like maybe with traditional Chaos draft, a lot of the games that involve tight play involve the opponents not reading your cards all the way through. <laughs> Both the Pioneer yeah. Chaos, it feels more like you have to read your own cards all the way through, which is probably a healthier version for modern magic. But I, I don't know. I like the punt-inducing stuff, too. I think that can be a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess, overall, um, one thing that we were talking about kind of in summary about traditional Chaos Draft is just that you need to lower your expectation. People who are used to drafting like 4-mana four 4-4s four at Common and stuff like that, limited nowadays, are going to be kind of off put maybe if they have to if they're not prepared to run some kind of understated old creatures or you know perfect yes with a downside right, exactly um, a couple of those in my deck in the chaos draft pro tour two mana tutus that were forced to attack or had to sacrifice one of them and frankly like i don't think my deck would have performed nearly as well without <laughs> without these cards that look and sound really bad because well one that was part of my game plan but two there just aren't better cards going around. And red, with no downside, is not a card that we got for a very long time. In fact, fun little allusion here to the standard gauntlet that was run on Magic Online. There was a Sly decklist, and it had, it was like a bunch of old, aggressive red creatures, and then a 2-mana two 2-2 two -two vanilla from like War of the Spark or something. <laughs> it's just like, wait a second. And the idea there just being that, you know, with the old creatures, just so many of them did have downsides. And yeah, uh, drawbacks too on overstated cards. You have to be familiar with some of those. Whereas like in Pioneer Chaos, not too many drawbacks you'll find. Not too many cards with bad stats that you really should be running. It's a lot more straightforward and similar to modern day limited in that sense. And the other thing too is it's just a very, very fast format can't be prepared to dirtle unless you have really good things to do on the early turns of the game. Good blockers, 
good removal spells. It's not ideal, but sometimes you even need like a bounce spell or something just to slow your opponent down, even though those are always best served in tempo decks. And yeah, I guess one other observation is you were talking about ramp, how that's not necessarily as important as the bigger creatures. And I think that's very much true in traditional chaos. One of the things I've noticed, for instance, in Master's Edition is one mana one one that ramps you is just not a powerful card when the games go like 10 plus turns regularly because a 1-1 obviously does not have the most impact on the board and if the games are going to go long anyway then you're just going to hit your land drops naturally you don't need a card like that to get you there and getting there turn early doesn't necessarily help anything especially if you're trying to cast a six mana five five your opponent has like a two mana way to kill it <laughs> yeah but things are very different in Pioneer Chaos because seven mana cards are not cards that are consistently castable. Because in order to hit your seventh land, I mean, ramp would be a very nice thing to help you get there. And that's going to be a pretty high pick. A lot of that is in green, of course. But without ramp, have much reliability casting a seven mana card. Almost always, you'd be better served with a cheaper card. Because even if you are able to cast your seven drop, and it does when you game some amount of the time that you play it, there's a real cost to having spells rot in your hand for a long time. Um, I was mentioning how ramp is something that's a really high pick in Pioneer Chaos because the speed is so much higher. You, re uh, you really need to figure out how to enact your game plan quickly, even if that is casting your more expensive spells. Connected to that is the idea of fixing. Um, but fixing is a little different from ramp because not every deck wants ramp in the sense that you don't want to take a turn off to play some artifact that, you know, adds mana to your mana pool, something like that. Some of the decks just want to play creatures every turn and beat down. But basically every deck does want mana fixing. Mana fixing is super powerful because one, it makes your game plan more consistent. It reduces the number of non-games that you play. But two, when you draft mana fixing, you improve the part of your deck that you don't have very much control over. Your lands. So when you draft mana fixing, I think you really increase your chances of having a better deck and being able to win uh, by quite a bit. And the other thing specific to this format is there are tons of bombs. There are so many bombs going around, tons of planeswalkers. It's nearly a cube, Pioneer Chaos, because that's how powerful the format is. And sometimes those bombs go late. If it's pack three, there's a rare with one pip. Uh, let's say it's one green symbol, but nobody can splash for it because no one's in green, and green has all the mana fixing, unless you've picked up some dual lands, something like that. And so this actually happened to me where not only was I able to pick up fixing to splash one off-color bomb rare, but I actually splashed not just a second off-color bomb, but a second color. <laughs> and my deck was super, super strong. I had tons of good fixing. I think that's one of my more instructive um, YouTube videos from the Pioneer Chaos season. Uh, just a really, <laughs> a really interesting one that can um, maybe have people question their fundamentals about how highly to take fixing. Yeah, that's like we did not really talk about that in traditional Chaos draft, and fixing is, is still very good there. But I think it's related to the five color reasoning I talked about. Like the better the table is the less likely it is for those cards to go super late, and the less you are rewarded for taking off-color fixing. I know many people say, like, 
in Chaos Draft always start with fixing and then everything will be good. But I believe the stronger the table is and the older the sets are that you draft, the less true this yep. is. Because you can also get just into the problem of just having not enough playables. Exactly. And the reality is, fixing really just doesn't do it for you in traditional chaos. Unless you're trying to do something very specific like five color, most of the time you should be focused on playables. And part of that is because the cards to splash are not nearly as strong. A lot of the cards that you're able to splash in Modern Day Limited are great creatures, great threats, things of that nature. Uh, whereas a lot of the best cards that you could pick up uh, that are off-color in traditional chaos are efficient removal spells. And removal is great, it's, you know, a critical part of limited, but splashing a removal spell that prevents you from losing does not have the same effect as splashing a bomb rare that leads to you winning pretty often. Yeah. How did you feel about the Planeswalkers? Because you played against Nyssa, who shakes the world, right? How was that? Yeah, I mean, as soon as it hit the table, I pretty much... My expectations went way down. I thought this is over, but we are going to play mm -hmm. through this. And I did manage to, to beat her one game. That's very impressive. Yeah, I lost one to her closely. I beat her in the second one because of being very aggressive and a lucky top deck at the right spot. Mm -hmm. And then in the last game, I lost, but not to Nyssa. Well, she, she didn't show up, but my deck didn't perform. But, boy, it's it makes for memorable stories from time to time. That is still the good thing about, about Chaos Draft. Like, if you lose to Planeswalkers often, that's really frustrating. But it's still way less frustrating than losing to the same Planeswalker <laughs> often. So, it's, I, think it's, I think it's one of the great things about Chaos Draft. Like, so unlikely that you will have a bad experience with exactly the same circumstances. For sure. It has to be like Sprout yeah. Swarm or something. Like, it really has to be like, you know, yeah, common, just yeah. a horrible common. I don't know. It's so funny because I normally have a very strong dislike for Planeswalkers, but I actually, I thought it was kind of fun, uh, the effect that they have on the format, just because, well, one, like you said, definitely some memorable games. Like, I'm not going to live down my win against Numot when he had the seven mana Rakdos Tibalt in play for a long time. That was, that's, you know, that has yeah. to be one of the best uh, games of Chaos Draft I've played, even though I'm not even convinced I played it super well. And yeah, I mean, there's another time where, another kind of instructive moment where I'm thinking about playing Selesnya, there's a chance I end up Orzov. I open this red planeswalker, Zerial, and I just drop everything. It's like, okay, we're playing red. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, that leads to a trophy, because that's that's what the Planeswalkers do. I uh, even faced another Planeswalker in one of the matches. Uh, well, I have to say that Zarya is, while very good, not anywhere near the level of or Nissa. Yeah, or Nissa. exactly. And the idea there really just being like, you know, like defend the, defend the fort, like do some puppy guarding. I have one of my older Chaos drafts where I got, I think it was Jace unraveler of mysteries something like that i don't remember the exact name but just like draws a card and scries one every turn basically and my opponent probably would have killed me if i didn't have it and because i had it i just got to play this super obnoxious game where i like chump blocked and threw away like a bunch of my resources and they had to throw away a bunch of their resources too and at the end of the day the jace just like easily let me and those games are probably pretty miserable from the opposite side but they're super interesting because whenever you are able to turn them around, it just 
makes for like a really excellent like against that Tibalt. And the other thing too is like you said, when you're not playing against the same one over and over, I think the experience is different enough that it's not too unpleasant. Like if it was Oko every time, I would probably be really upset. But <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, another great uh, win in chaos against Oko, by the way. But regardless, we don't have to <laughs> revisit all of those moments. Okay, are you ready to move on to the artisan cube, or the or actually quartzet cube is first, right? Yeah, I'm not sure which of. I don't think I played the corset. Okay. So yeah, I'll just talk about this one briefly. So this is one that we already had on Magic Online. So yeah, this one was created by Harper O'Neill. And yeah, we did see this cube once before. This time it's been expanded. So now we're including cards from Limited Edition Alpha. And that definitely has some exciting implications. But this time we're not doing anything too busted. There's one of the things in my opinion, that's been really nice about this cube is um, there aren't too many cards that feel like they're way, way better than everything else. <laughs> that can really make a cube experience less fun for me. And there's so much like less risk on the opposite side of things, right? If you have a couple of cards that are unplayable, you know, then someone like me who watches a lot of cube is going to have some criticism for you. But if you have a couple cards that are better than every other card, well, then everyone is going to have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah that's even like more relevant as long as we keep drafting with 15 card packs the lowest the lower percentage cards just don't matter they don't show up but it's yep yeah that's very true so yeah this cube one of the things that i liked about this one is that there are some really nice kind of off the wall archetypes that are supported some really silly things you can do with big mana speaking of i played against david mcdarby who is Definitely doing some silly things with big mana. He was on a very powerful set. On brand. Mm -hmm. On yes. brand for him. Yeah, uh, extremely on brand because I believe uh, turn three of game one, he cast uh, Jace Bellerin. So, <laughs> and that's his uh, Twitter handle as well, Jay Bellerin. And yeah, that was a really sweet one. That was my only draft of the format too. Ended up with a blue-black deck that I didn't love. Didn't think it had enough synergy. Felt like maybe it was lacking some consistency, but overall the card quality was good. My draws ended up playing well, and I think my sideboard did too, and I was able to pilot the deck to a trophy. So that made things pretty fun for me. And it felt like I was in kind of an insurmountable position against David McDarby after game one too, where he just like basically flipped over his whole deck, put it all into play, and I just didn't think I could <laughs> ever do anything in games two or three. There is one... Other thing I'd like to point out about this cube, which is it mentions in the article that monocolor is something that has a strong presence here. And I think it's important to keep an eye on that for sure. I know actually going back to the Bant cube, Autumn was talking about on Twitter how mono white had the best results. And I just think it's really important that they're cognizant of that because I do think that kind of thing happens all the time. I think, you know, if you have that in mind, presumably you're going to try to tweak it. And then that's going to lead to just a more fun experience, I think. If Mono White is always the winningest deck, then I don't think that's as fun. And one of the things here, I'm not too sure about the Monocolor decks because um, I don't think I encountered them. But the mana fixing was really one of the big hangups for me. Just because lots of cards with multiple pips and 
without mana fixing, you really are discouraged to play a multicolor deck. Two plus colors, um, I'll you know define as multicolored. <laughs> it's a very low yeah. bar. <laughs> sure, but if like you know if you can just pick up enough playables with a monocolored deck, kind of like perhaps the next cube, which we'll be talking about the draft that we did together there. Then like, what's your real incentive to play a second color? It has to be something very strong, and it also has to be incentivized by fixing i think and this is a tricky one because there just isn't that much fixing i think the traditional duels might have or the original duels i should say might have shown up in this cube i don't remember for sure but regardless i remember thinking that man it is very difficult to get some blue black fixing during this draft and it wasn't because the colors weren't open yeah if they stay with singleton then the original duels are also just like super high picks if there's not much else yeah even without fetch them you see the underground sea or not like (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Especially because with like the modern cube philosophy, so many people are just like pack one, pick one underground C. And it's a lot worse without fetches. It's probably wrong in my opinion in a lot of cubes, but I mean it has its merits. <laughs> Definitely has its merits. Yeah. Yeah. In in Artisan Cube, you noted here that the fixing was great. Yes. Um it stayed it stayed singleton and it stayed um peasant right that's right no no rule breaking (laughs) which i personally am a fan of rule breaking i think that cube is basically up to the people playing it and the person designing it like the designer of course has the most control over uh, how the environment is going to look but ideally you're designing it for the people who are going to play it and for instance i used to be really strict on rules i thought it was very important that my um peasant cube was singleton and that you know the mana fixing and everything like that was also restricted to commons and uncommons but then i kept getting the feedback that hey there's not enough fixing so i was like okay i'll triple the gain lands and you know throw out that singleton rule but the gain lands aren't the best mana fixing and three copies really did not feel like enough so i ended up throwing that idea out and just kind of embracing the peasant plus lifestyle where now i have something like cycle of six dual lands i think they're all rare now that we just got the second half of the slow lands i think i'll be trying them out cube as well still not sure exactly how i feel about those but i don't hate them yeah so i mean i'm skipping a little bit ahead but i played quite a bit with them in the vintage Mm -hmm. cube they only have the half cycle in there Mm -hmm. and i really like them they play very well like i still I have a little bit of a problem with the concept that they do favor like not aggressive mm. decks, yeah. but they do play incredibly well. And friend of the podcast, Snow Schwartz, also put it nicely into words for me. Like there's basically just one turn where they come to play tapped. Like the first turn, you don't really care often because often you don't have a one drop, so you can play them there. It doesn't really count. Turn two is awkward, and turn three they already come to play untapped. And yeah, that is. Very good. Yeah, for sure. Like, like I still have a little bit of of a problem with it that I most want to encourage more than one color aggressive decks because they so often end up one color. But apart from that, like they play very well. They're just very good fixing, much better than I thought they would. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of that too can be kind of conceptualized by thinking about an opening hand. Is if you have an opening hand, we'll say with three total lands and two of them are basics, then you're set right? A slow land is never coming into play. Um, well, it doesn't need to come into play uh, tapped. And yeah. 
even if you don't have a one drop, you might still play them turn yeah, one. Exactly, yeah. If you additional flexibility mm -hmm. on your draws. They just play so well all of the time. Do you think they're pretty nice? On the other hand, um, I do think the strike against them that you pointed out is a big one um, because I think one of the most important things about dual lands is that they um, can support multicolor aggro. Um, and we really could yeah. use more lands that do that. Yeah, so to put it into like this comparison, finish this comparison between the fast lands and the slow lands, I think the fast lands uh, fast lands are worse in cube, but they will most likely be my choice over the slow lands because they are incentivizing what I want to incentivize. That makes sense. Like even though I know they are weaker, but yeah, also such a horrible feeling on like turn seven or turn eight to you know top deck a land that you need, but oh, the fast land. <laughs> um, on the other hand, yeah. Um, I do think you're right. I think like almost exactly what you said is how I feel. Um, like I think they're worse, and I think they are more important, basically. Um, and I would consider them for my peasant cube, the other half of the fast lands. That is, if they were printed from Shadows Over Innistrad onward, maybe I'll break that rule too. I'm not really sure. Anyway, yeah. going on to this artisan cube. So yeah, I think from multiple people, if I remember correctly. I heard something along the lines of this cube has the best mana base I have ever seen in a popper or peasant like format, which we're basically I'll be using artisan and peasant synonymously here or interchangeably. And yeah, I think that is very true. There were tons of lands, really, really good fixing without breaking the rule too, which is not easy to do. I think it's a mistake many cube designers make. Like I've made that mistake, you know plenty of times that you just don't put enough fixing into a cube and so you know it's great to see that that was one thing that was very well done and i know going back to our five color conversations j bro drafted at least and probably trophied with at least a couple five color decks in that artisan cube My yeah so yeah i i think the they basically put everything in there that is known to be good in terms of fixing mm -hmm. right they have the Vivids, they have the Thriving Lands, the Evolving Wild variants, but they go a little bit further with Archway of Commons, for example, which I think I have not seen very often, and Rupture Spire. So this is the lands where you have to pay one mana when they come into play. This enables five color because they are just not amazing fixing outside of five color. So yeah, maybe that's something I could do in my queue. Also. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think apart from that, the fixing there is very similar to my peasant cube. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Trilands too are critical part of the peasant mana base. I think the rupture spire and archway commons of, and I think there's probably one more. Remember, but yeah, I think that you can play them in the three color decks. Like when I've played them in chaos draft before, most of the time it's because I am playing three colors. Yeah, yeah, you can, but they're not, especially in cube, not high picks. Right. It's like. You get them late, they are a necessary need in the situation you are in. Which is definitely useful because a lot of fixing is taken really highly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll start off by saying I think the synergistic archetypes were very strong. So one of the ones I didn't get to draft, but I saw a number of times throughout the season was the Sacrifice or Aristocrats deck. Anything where you can get just like a couple blood artists in play, um, whether they trigger off of anyone's creatures or only your own, just leads to games where you can kill your opponent without really needing to attack. 
And that's not something that everyone wants to incentivize in their cubes, but it's definitely a very synergistic style of play. And yeah, I think you can do really powerful things with the red-black sacrifice archetype, especially if it's not contested. If someone else is um, trying to draft the same kind of cards, then that's not going to go very well for you. You really need the redundancy to make that archetype powerful, because one Blood Artist doesn't really do anything super special. It's when you have two or maybe even three that you know things start getting nuts. And then another very, very synergistic archetype, a ubiquitous archetype even, was Blink. So the Blink cards, this one I had a pretty strong feeling about going in. I noticed a couple of the cards in the blue-white-gold section. I was like, oh, Soul Herder. Oh, Cloud Blazer. The main thing to notice here is that the Cloud Blazers of the format are already among the more powerful cards in the standing by themselves. Cloud Code Ranger, Mool Drifter, Ravenous Chupacabra. Pokemon, Necrotal, Flame Tongue, uh, the whole, yeah. <laughs> Fiery. <Ink. laughs> yeah, all of those cards, they're already amazing. And then you can build on top of that. Yes. And that's where the Soul Herder comes in, right? Yes. Yeah, Soul Herder, I think, is probably my number one. This should not be in the cube card if I had to if I had to come up with one. Because yeah, I mean I think that the FTKs can have a place. I think right now there are probably too many of them. And it's also very clunky with the non-black wording on a lot of them. But I think right now the concentration just of the FTKs is enough to make something like mono white aggro virtually unplayable in my eyes. Yep. Mono red is different. Uh, because the resources are different and the threats are different. If you get your opponent to three or six life or something, you know, it doesn't matter if they have Soul Herder, Necrotal, because you just need to draw the burn spells. Then you're caring about whether they have some kind of life gain. Maybe they have that um, mana 2-3 flyer that, uh, you know, when it enters the battlefield, draws you a card and gains you three life. Or maybe they have just some counter spells, something like a Mystic Snake, which also works very well with blink spells. And... Yeah, so the Blink archetype, so one of my heuristics, I guess, in Popper Cube is a good way to communicate this. So I learned from Corticals, or Alex Nikolic, I think, about the concept of tempo positive versus tempo negative card advantage. So like earlier, we were talking about some tempo negative card advantage. I mentioned Glimmer of Genius, you mentioned Catalog, stuff like that. And tempo positive card advantage is like your Cloud Conseer. It's your Necrotal. You know, the cards that you're playing a spell, it impacts the board in either more than one way or impacts the board and draws you a card, even something like Trumpeting Herd. So these cards are already excellent, right? And then when you're able to turn something like that into a repeated source of value for like very little mana, so like Ephemerate, of course, comes to mind. That's a big offender. You just have some like really, really insane stuff uh, that you're able to do like ephemerate the necrotal your opponent's like well i'm you know i'm trying to play creatures here but i i could just concede like <laughs> you know i don't need to wait for this ephemerate to come off rebound like you know i know how my deck looks yeah i have to say that this while well, this is like really true that this is like what's happening there all the time and super strong it's also nice in a way a little bit that it just gives the format like an identity right definitely gives you know these are the bounds you are playing in. yeah that said, I think there's a way to do both. I think there's a way to have like ETBs still be very strong. In fact, I think it would be almost impossible to make them weak. But specifically like a flicker deck or archetype, 
think could be made weaker by just putting in a little bit less support for it. Because, or maybe, you know, cards that support the archetype, but maybe it's a two mana one three that when it enters the battlefield, it gains you three life. And so suddenly now you're gaining three life, um, maybe like a couple times or something like that. Because, yeah, again, for me, it's the cards like Ephemerate and Soul Herder that are just the most egregious. The cards that for so little mana, like Soul Herder, you know, it's that initial investment of three. And then from there on, it's just zero mana, right, to use that ability. And it just puts you so, so far ahead. The other thing, too, is the lack of sweepers. This is, you know, something we've talked about before. And I actually don't think sweepers are the answer here, uh, even though I wouldn't mind them. I don't think they are. They wouldn't even be great. They would just make the aggressive deck even more. Yes, exactly. That's my that's my thought, too. Because right now, basically, my thought is Mono White is... It's not unplayable, but it's, like, you know, 100% to lose, practically, certain matchups. And you add sweepers then maybe you hurt the blink decks a little bit but if they're blinking and drawing cards well maybe you didn't hurt them very much and you're definitely hurting the aggro decks <laughs> so yeah i think it's really difficult to it might not even be possible i'm not really sure to balance you know monocolor aggression with a very strong value strategy like blink but currently <laughs> i got tired of the blink losses pretty quickly even when i was the one playing the blink deck it just I don't know. The games were uninteresting. But counterpoint is that the games where basically Blink wasn't involved, I thought were really, really tight. You know, lots of careful play involved, you know, lots of clawing back into games, much like against the Planeswalkers, as we were talking about earlier. And the fact that, you know, uh, that is something that could be achieved uh, without Planeswalkers, I thought was really impressive. But again, the caveat is the decks where you're clawing back into games and having these epic battles were usually the bad decks. Uh, the good decks just won in landslides. And I think- yeah, so we drafted one time together. We drafted Mono Black, and we basically did the less strong version of the Blink deck. Yes. Um, so we were very mid-rangey, and we combined like good comes-to-play ability creatures with Raise dead effects, so grave digger effect, mm. which is like you are also getting like a two for one into a two for one. Yeah, it's the same thing, but you go to detour via the graveyard, and it's also super strong and hard to interact with. But that's the way we we did it in in this deck, and that also works quite well. So maybe that's a more interesting play pattern than the blink deck. I think so. Because my main thought there is, you know, with our deck, we had to cast our spells. There's no just like pay one or two mana. And just like totally circumvent having to spend mana to cast the spells. I thought that that was like an important part of it. Another thing too is, I mean, yes, we did have uh, Shriek Moss, Skin Render, Necrotal. I think our deck would have still been really good if we were missing one or even two of those. And I think that that's, you know, that's another potential way to limit the power of the blank decks. But yeah, I mean, our deck was really, really sweet. Um, it wasn't the most synergistic thing ever. But just like good card quality, great uh, consistency with the mono black mana base. Also, one more thing forgot to mention earlier. I really, really appreciate the love for the MDFCs in this cube. I think that getting almost every, possibly every uncommon MDFC from Battle for, or whoops, not Battle for Zendikar, Zendikar Rising, not only like improves mana bases, but just makes games more interesting, reduces non-games, and just about all of them, I think, are 
you know, solidly playable in this in this environment. So yeah, they just feel nice. Yeah, they do. They're just fun to play with. Yeah. Any other comments on this artisan cube, or should we move on to the current vintage cube? Yeah. No. It's just again what I say very often. I enjoyed this, and I hope it will be back. And let's see what changes. Yeah. That would be great. Too. Yeah. So yeah, the vintage cube is online for three weeks. I had some good runs, and yeah, but just just playing for myself. But also check out Twitch. There's many people streaming. And yeah, sometimes even smaller streamers just scroll down a little bit. And I think that's, I don't know. I don't know why people love the Vintage Cube that much compared to other cubes. But it's here for a long time. So it gives people the chance to play. And it gives like newer people who are interested in Cube a chance to grow their channels. Because for these three weeks, I think gives them the chance to stream every day and small channels grow a little bit so yeah have have a look who's online so snow Schwartz is streaming still a relatively small streamer but there's also people you have never heard of like i just found a new stream yesterday somebody just starting out and it's just nice so have a look around play yourself sure yeah vintage cube content is some of the most uh, readily available cube content and that's great news if you are looking to get into Cube. I think actually, possibly as we speak, Carmen Handy is streaming and talking a little bit about Cube design while playing the Vintage Cube she's worked on. So that's really, you know, really a sweet opportunity to witness some content. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's very interesting too, to your point of why do people love the Vintage Cube so much? I think part of it, if I had to guess, is because everyone else seems to. If everyone else is like so excited about something, I think just like being in their presence probably has an effect on you too. Yeah, that's true. If people are happy to play something, I'm happy to watch it. Yeah, I I actually I did do one draft this time on my own. I kind of go all over the place with how many drafts I do of Vintage Cube because it really isn't the most interesting or new to me. So sometimes I'll draft a ton, just try to rack up some play points. But seasons like this one, I think I'm probably just going to be done after the one draft. I didn't just draft Mono White this time. I drafted Mono White Splashing Oko. And uh, <laughs> with like Simic Signet and just any fixing I could get. And, you know, was it worth it? It was definitely worth it for science. But is it actually the correct play? Probably not. That's not. Probably yeah. not, yeah. But I cast the Okos, though. I mean... My opponent. Yeah, I often I often try stuff in Vintage Cube, which might not be the the best yeah. thing, and it's what many people do from time to time. If I feel like Mono White is super open, I'll switch into it, pick five, and then go Mono White and trophy, or at least get to the yep. finals. It's pretty. That's something that that I like yeah. to do, but I also really like to try other things. And one last thing for me to uh, Vintage Cube is Court of Bounty sucks. <laughs> I hate that card. I tried it. It just, I don't know, it just doesn't work. It's, I wanted to try something new and I knew it's probably bad, but it was really terrible. So I was on the play, um, had two green sources, mana, what, mana vault? No, what, uh, Crypt. the broken one for mana crypt, yes. And thought, this, and, and it had an Eldrazi in hand. I thought, well, this time it yeah. should work. It did not. I played my forest, my opponent played Thoughtseize, oh. took my crypt. And then they played a, uh, some dorky creature. I think it was a Jadar. Yeah. New, new uh, add to the cube, probably just around for one. 
iteration. Yeah. One in the black for a one one that makes a two two decayed zombie creature mm -hmm. return token that takes once and then dies and can't yeah. block. I think it's pretty cool card but doesn't really have enough synergy yeah i do think it's a great card for other cubes with more synergy yes i agree i agree in this cube basically it has uh only only skull clamp yeah. and that's what it yeah is. i mean you can argue stuff about well actually i mean yogmoth is probably one of the other good ones but yogmoth is a very yeah and then the last one is probably the small yeah. stack but I, it doesn't really have a real home but anyway I didn't do anything else for the remainder of that game and slowly died to the three damage. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah that... And then in another, another game, I just like, thought, oh, my two blockers should be this. But no, the opponent had removal. I lost, uh, I lost to my own um, Monarch. Yeah. Like, as good as Palace Jailer is, Court of Bounty is that bad. Yeah, and I think really the difference, well, there are a few differences. One of them is, like, you play Palace Jailer, it affects the board in two ways, right? One of those is a nice interactive way, and the other is it gives you a creature to, you know, basically like poke your opponent for damage. Even if they deal combat damage to you, you can use the Jailer to regain the Monarch. Probably not a great play because they're getting their thing back at that point, but, you know, it's still something. And then the other thing is basically just the ability. The way it's designed, I think, is... Not very fun, because it leads to a lot of misunderstandings about, oh, but I killed your palace jailer. Why didn't I get my creature back? Or, you know, <laughs> oh, you flickered yeah. your palace jailer. Now two of my things are gone. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So that is one of the things. That is just a much more powerful card, but it's also not in the right colors. And like in green, like what would your board state look like that you can defend the, the monarchy yeah. while also playing that? And having something fat you still want to put into play. Like, yeah. I think in a, the card is best if you are somehow in the late game and have stabilized, ignoring the putting something free into play clause. At that point. But then it's just so much worse than just portal. Thought of the Black Rose or something like that. So much, or yeah. Corrosive Portal, which is much less risky. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's, the card just really yeah. sucks. It, if you want to go wild and, and try try but i believe it's worse than the eureka or show and tell <laughs> wow. and those cards are already very that bad. really says a lot because i mean show and tell to me is a card that like is you know it's an enormous like trap slash coin flip like sometimes it just outright wins you the game and sometimes casting actively kills you sometimes literally to like an inferno titan or and then you're yeah i feel like call of bounty is mm -hmm. the same Except it's less flashy the way you loop. Yeah. <laughs> like you play this and it just didn't work out and your opponent's running away with the game without you ever putting your thing into play in the first Yeah. That sounds quite poor, but I'm guessing it'll probably hang around in the cube for a while. Oh, okay. Brief soapbox rant about one card. Right of uh of harmony. <laughs> so green and a white has flashback for two generic, like one green and one white. And you might say, hey, you didn't tell us what the card actually does, you just skipped the flashback cost. And I would argue that's because it doesn't do anything. <laughs> but uh, the text on it is, whenever an enchantment or a creature enters the battlefield until end of turn, uh, you draw a card. Something like that. And the idea is you're supposed to put a bunch of things into play, draw a bunch of cards. Or even just two things, right? Two mana dorks, something like that. But if you're really doing it, then maybe you you know, got your deranged hermit into play or something like that. And 
it's just so horrible because if you're playing green, you don't want to play white. Green white is not really a supported color pair and like that has its own problems, but like the green white gold cards that are strong, something like Knight of the Reliquary, which goes into, you know, the Omnath Niv deck, right? But something like that, like one, I don't want to play white. So that's already a big strike against it. Avacyn's Pilgrim is not enough for me to want to play white. Two, or Noble Hierarch, or even Bob. Two, like, it's very, very difficult to draw multiple cards. Like, let's think of a situation where you can do that. So you go... Okay, so you are like five color storm, <laughs> and you go right off harmony into ritual, ritual, and then you mm -hmm. empty the warrants yep. and draw your whole deck. Then you brain freeze them. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of I mean, life? I guess the real question is how did you get white mana in your storm deck, like lotus petal? Well, I had it anyway to cast my cradle. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This card. Yeah, it's a pipe dream. Like it's it's a real pipe dream, and yeah, it's just not a good. Fit, no, I think I this think. card. I'm actually pretty confident that this is just a pet card that's like done something impressive once in like standard or historic or something. And you know, the idea was maybe we'll try it in the vintage cube. And then I actually don't know if I've ever seen anyone pick it. And by pick, I mean like intentionally choose. I think it has gone fifteenth possibly every time I've seen it, and I've watched a good number of drafts. <laughs> Yep. So this is one that I hope will disappear soon. And I would be very interested to see if there's any, a single listener out there who disagrees with me. If there is one person cast this Rite of Harmony and been happy with it, especially like repeatedly, you know, then I'll take it all back. I'll, I really want to ask Jasper if he did the, or, or, or Juan, if they did the Rite of Harmony, Empty the Warrens thing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> It, it would be fun. They, they probably would have told us, but... <laughs> sure. Jasper would spell trophy with an extra H and we'd get a picture in the Discord and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... I think we... We're good for now. Went over everything then. Uh, you can join our Discord. We'll have it linked. All right, everybody. See you next time and... Looking forward to seeing you there. Be queuing. Bye.